Our text this morning is Nehemiah chapter 10. If you'd like to open your Bible there or navigate on your device, that's uh, turned down low so that I can't hear it. And you know, it really annoys me when you move your fingers too. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I hear that tapping. The topic we're going to find there, the Israelites make a series of promises to not neglect the house of God, the title of our message, God's house is a very, very, very divine house. (laughs) Father, thank you so much for this time that we have set aside to worship you and adore you. Now as we hear your word, Lord, we we study it for sure, but uh, we need it to kind of study us. We need it to get down into us and reveal to us how much love, how much grace, how much mercy that you have for us. Bring us back, Lord, to our first love. Uh, Whether we've left it or or not, just rekindle it in all of us, Lord, so that uh, when we leave this place, we're uh, so much more on fire than when we came in. Take us through this word now, Lord, we pray, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Notre Dame or Notre Dame. Which do you prefer? Notre Dame. Dame. How many for Notre Dame? How many for Notre Dame? See, it's always about even. (laughs) Decades of neglect threatened that cathedral well before it recently burned. Jean-Michel Lenoir, president of the Scientific Council at the National Heritage Institute, told reporters, the lack of real upkeep and daily attention to such a major building is the cause of this catastrophe. A 2017 Time Magazine article on its deterioration noted the features of Notre Dame's famous gargoyles looked as worn away as the face of Voldemort. Voldemort. I can't pronounce him either, yeah. Voldemort. Is it Vold? Voldemort. I hate that series of movies, but anyway. I watched him twice, gave him a chance. Oh my gosh, Pastor Gene watched Harry Potter. Don't leave. I'm still a Christian. (laughs) Neglect is mentioned in the last verse of our chapter at the end where the Israelites promise concerning their temple, we will not neglect the house of our God. That phrase, the house of God, appears uh, eight times in the final 12 verses. The repetition seems to suggest that we pay attention to it. In our time... In the church age, the house of our God is the gathering of believers in Christ. Collectively, we are the building, we are the temple, we are the house. We go by the name church. Leading up to their promise, the Israelites commit to several behaviors that would keep them from neglecting the house of their God. I'm pretty sure none of us wants to neglect the church. To that end, maybe we can glean a few things from the insights of the Israelites about how to not neglect. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, not neglecting means that you have organization. And number two, not neglecting means that you have obligations. Let's take a look first of all in the first 27 verses about organization. There are a few Christian cliches that need to die. When God closes a door, he opens a window. I see what they're saying. God is still leading you, but he may not open anything. He may want you right where you are until he opens the right door. Let go and let God. 
I get that we are to rest in the Lord, but the kind of rest the Bible describes is an active discipleship. It's a pursuit of holiness, a striving to win the race. It isn't lethargy. God will never give you more than you can handle. Of course he will. He does it all the time. It's his specialty. He won't give you more than he can handle living through you, empowering you. If God didn't give you more than you could handle, what good would it be to be a Christian? You wouldn't have to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit because you would have your own strength to get through it. And believe me, you don't. Now, I'm certain that I have said one or more of these, so don't be discouraged. Just stop saying them. Now, here's one more. The church is not an organization. It's an organism. Wow, that's profound. And I get that. We shouldn't run the church according to a worldly model or suggest secular principles for spiritual progress. We are, after all, compared to an organism, a living human body with Jesus as its head. But guess what? Last time I checked, an organism is organized. The Apostle Paul recognized that the body was organized when he wrote to the Corinthians and said, but now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. It's been a while since I've watched the classic Star Trek pilot, The Menagerie. How many of you have ever watched The Menagerie with Captain Pike? If I'm recalling correctly, at the end of the uh, uh, episode, the woman named Vina refuses to leave. It's because her beautiful appearance was an illusion. In reality, she's much older and was left severely deformed by the crash of her ship. For a moment, you see her as she really is. She wasn't reassembled quite right because the species, the Telosians, had never seen a human being before. They didn't know how to organize her various body parts. They did the best they could. All to say that your physical body is organized and so should the body of believers be. And so let's look at the opening verses of chapter 10 with an eye for organization. Verse 1. Now those who placed their seal on the document were Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah and Zedekiah. Verse 2. And 28 other guys, or excuse me, 82 other guys with difficult to pronounce Hebrew names. Little dyslexic moment there for a minute. Is Pastor Gene really going to skip over those names? Yeah. <laughs> I think I pointed out to you a few weeks ago that Nehemiah skipped over a bunch of names when he made a list. He didn't list all 42,360 returnees. And so what's good enough for Nehemiah? Good enough for me. I'm a Nehemiahite. There is something important to notice in the list. The names are organized. In verse 1, Nehemiah and Zedekiah are the civil authorities who had been placed over Israel. We're told the names in verses 2 through 8 are those of priests. Next are listed Levites and their brethren in verses 9 through 13. And last but not least, they listed to, uh, listened to a lengthy list of lineage leaders. Israel had an organized government, and more importantly, they had a very organized religion. Now, we went through the book of Exodus recently, and you might remember the meticulous setup, sacrifices, and offerings. Every time I read it, I got something different. I, I, I didn't really even understand. Uh, it, it's so detailed. The priests and the Levites had specific duties. They weren't free to change things around. The two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, found that out when they offered what the Bible calls strange fire on the altar instead of the fire that God had prescribed, fire came down from God and consumed them on the spot. And so you didn't mess around with this stuff. 
A worshiper didn't just walk in and do as he pleased. There were procedures. There was organization. Read through the New Testament, and the only conclusion you can honestly come to is that Jesus has called believers out from the world to meet together as his body in local assemblies. For example, everywhere the Apostle Paul went on his missionary journeys, he established churches. He preached Christ and him crucified, but he didn't leave converts to do as they pleased. He organized them under gifted leaders, pastors and teachers and elders and deacons. And so his goal was to establish churches because Jesus talked about the church and building his church and the apostles went out and they did that. Think about that for a minute. Paul would go into an area, most of the time he wasn't there very long. The believers weren't very old in the Lord. In Thessalonica, they were only two weeks old in the Lord, and yet Paul organized them in some way and put some people into leadership. How would you like it if you came to church one day and said, hey, this seems like a pretty cool church. How long has your uh, leadership been established? 14 days. Oh, okay. It was something, no, no, I mean, they just got saved 14 days ago. Wow, I think I'll go somewhere else. Of course, in the first century, there was no place else to go. But that's the idea. Organization was so important to Paul that he couldn't wait for people to mature. He had to choose the most gifted individuals, and then they did their best. Gino's teaching through Acts on Wednesday night. It's a great series. And one of the things he's highlighting and emphasizing is how the first century church had no idea what they were doing. Everybody wants to go back and be the first century church. We're as close to it as anybody. No, I'm just kidding. But they didn't. You think about it, they had no idea what they were doing. Their leadership was less than a year old uh, and because no one was a Christian uh, until Paul preached the gospel. Now, I'm not going to talk about various forms of biblical church government. You can argue for at least three different forms. But in practice, if not philosophy, I found that most churches end up with elements of them all. A few years ago, and even today, there was a big push towards... Uh, elder-driven churches where elders you know, are co-equal and there's a group of elders and they run the church and that's the only possible biblical church leadership. But what I find in those churches is that there are elements of congregational rule and elements of uh, episcopal rule as well. And they kind of all mesh together. And so you want to see how things really work together, not what it says on paper. I will say this about church government. Whatever form a local church adopts is not as critical as the men in leadership being committed to keeping the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. They must work together in love, not law. So that's what you're really looking for is men who are working together in love for the good of the body of Christ. It's enough for us today to recognize that the believers of the church age are organized as local assemblies. Now, this isn't news to you. Uh, And you're thinking, we all know that. What might be news and what is good information is there is something now called the house church movement. The proponents believe small churches were a deliberate apostolic pattern in the first century and that they were intended by Jesus. Listen to this bold statement by a house church proponent. He says, a largely hidden yet growing phenomena is changing the face of Christianity in the West and profoundly affecting the way in which Christians are choosing to practice their faith. That's a big statement. That's a huge statement. 
Then he goes on to say, disillusioned by the lack of New Testament reality, abusive authority, and the spreading apostasy within large segments of the institutionalized church, thousands of Christians across America, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand, and the United Kingdom are gathering in homes to study the scriptures together, pray, share the Lord's Supper, and experience the fellowship and simplicity of first century Christianity. Now, they're not talking about having home fellowships or life groups or those kinds of things and still going to a church. They're saying your home group is your church, period. In their way of thinking, there should be no mega churches, and a church like ours ought to be at least 20 different house churches that don't get together. Francis Chan is now a house church guy. Some of you might be familiar with his writings. In his most recent book, he says, God wants meaningful interactions when we gather, not like the kind we're having. Uh, For this reason, we keep our churches small, 10 to 20 people meeting in homes to create a family atmosphere. Now, it's true the first century believers did meet in homes, except when they didn't meet in homes. In Ephesus, the apostle Paul met for two years in something called the School of Tyrannus. He was driven out of the synagogue And so he taught every day for two years in a school. When correcting the Corinthians about their behavior at the Lord's Supper, one of the things Paul said was, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? That indicates they were gathering someplace other than a house to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper. He said, hey, stay at home if you want to get drunk and be a glutton. But don't come where we're gathered together to have the Lord's Supper, which is not in your house. The first century church didn't only meet in homes. You'll find no instruction about its maximum size. In fact, the very first first century church cancels out the house church movement. Uh, I, I don't see how you can even postulate this movement given these two facts. First, the disciples in the upper room numbered how many? 120, not 10 or 20. And that's way too many for a house church. And second... After Peter preached to the crowd at the temple that day, there was an instant megachurch that only got bigger every time they preached the gospel. And the apostles didn't say, hey, this is getting out of hand, split into groups of 10 and go home. They didn't do that at all. And you would think they would, knowing what they knew. By the way, you'll also find that whether the house churches or not, the first century churches had a plethora of problems We should model ourselves after them only to the extent they followed the teachings of the prophets and apostles. You can long for former days and be nostalgic a lot, you know, and think, oh, it was was better back then when I was younger and stuff like that. I would never want to be younger. Uh, It's it's insane. Young people pray to be older. But anyway, uh, you know, you always think that. And we have a tendency to look at the first church, the first century church, and uh, idolize it. But we should only emulate it to the point that they were following the teaching of the Lord and and knew what they were doing. A lot of times uh, they had problems. The church at Corinth was rife with problems. Uh, If you you attended Corinth, you'd be better off staying home and watching on video, you know, that kind of a thing. I mean, it was terrible. And so, yeah, I want to be like the first century church in terms of the power of the Holy Spirit, the spreading of the gospel, people getting saved, lives changed, all of that. But I don't want to be like it in the other ways that required a lot of correction. And in fact, what I'm getting at is that the church is always the same. We are the first century church. We're just in 
the 21st century with it, waiting for the Lord to come back for us. The important thing is to follow the Lord's leading and apply the organization of the New Testament. I've mentioned to you before that a church ought to have a story of how and why it was established. And so if you go to somebody and say, hey, what's your story? Well, we read the Bible and we think everybody prior to this in 21 centuries has been wrong and that there should only be 10 people per church and so we started a church. That's not much of a story. That doesn't even seem like you're really led by the Lord. These movements that start with people discovering things that have never been discovered before uh, and that all the godly men that you read and who have devotions and all of this, that they didn't recognize this, but now these guys are recognizing it, that, that's not a good start for a church. And they mention the abuse. Certainly people get abused in churches, don't get me wrong. But I think there's a greater potential to be abused in a small group of people than there is in a large group because there's less voices. There are less people to appeal to. There's less pressure on the perceived leader and that kind of a thing. Small groups at least have as much potential for apostasy and uh, tradition and things as any larger group. And so uh, it's a movement. I hope it dies out. If you hear anything about it, uh, it's easily argued against. The church isn't, as some pejoratively say, organized religion. A church is an organism comprised of living believers, and they're organized by Jesus as head of the body. Not neglecting it requires that you have significant contact with a local fellowship with biblically organized leadership like you guys are doing. So uh, number two, not neglecting also means that you have obligations. Do you like that word, obligations? It has an immediately negative connotation. I'm obligated, or my favorite, obligatory. I almost choke on that. This is obligatory. Sounds like legalism almost. So how about this? Much obliged. You ever said that to somebody? Canadians say that a lot, much obliged. It's when you uh, are grateful for somebody's assistance. And there's an obligation, but you're much obliged to uh, re, re, uh, you know, give it back to them. So I want to approach the obligations that the Israelites put themselves under as them being much obliged to the Lord for his faithfulness. Verse 28, now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding. You can almost feel the excitement, the expectation of the entire assembly of Israel. It was, to use a fun, descriptive word, palpable. I like that word. Rolls off the tongue. The more we realize the truth that Jesus is in the midst of the gathered church on earth, the more palpable our times together will be. I think to a certain extent, large extent, um, if we don't, try not to get mystical, but if we don't sense or feel or understand the presence of the Lord when the word of God is read and taught and when worship takes place and when believers are fellowshipping, the problem is usually with us because the Lord said, I'm going to be there. I walk in the midst of the candlesticks, which represent the church. The Holy Spirit is there to be your teacher. The Holy Spirit is in you if you're a Christian as well. Uh, The word of God is powerful and able to discern uh, between the soul and the spirit. It's also able, if you're here today, to open your heart and open your blind eyes and free your will so that you can come to Christ for the first time. 
You know, all of this is working, working, working. If we don't sense that, uh, if we leave any service, even a dull service, and think, wow, I got nothing out of that, uh, then I would suggest I put nothing into it. I, I, I didn't give the Lord a chance. You know, the Lord, he doesn't just show up when, when there's entertainment and excitement. I told you, I think last week, I was fascinated reading about Jonathan Edwards, famous evangelist, American evangelist, the Great Awakening. He was as dull as watching paint dry. <laughs> it's universally known that he spoke in a monotone, read his sermons that lasted hours, and yet God used him mightily. They didn't have a band behind him or you know, the latest Christian entertainer or anything like that. God just used the power of his word and an expectant people. And so uh, we can have more of a palpable feeling as we really contemplate that we're here to be with the Lord. Verse 29, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. Don't get hung up on the word curse. They were confessing that they would keep God's law, the Mosaic law, and if they didn't, they acknowledged there would be consequences, blessings for obedience, what you might call curses for disobedience. In other words, their, their crops wouldn't uh, produce, uh, and ultimately enemies would come and take them away and discipline them, and so that's what they meant by cursing. Um, and, and, and so they were much obliged to have that law. They were, they were excited about having that law to govern their lives, even if they would be disciplined for disobeying it. Some of you would admit you needed a lot more discipline as a child. Uh, I know who you are, and you know who you are too. <laughs> I needed a lot more discipline as a child. And uh, you know, I, I never disrespect my mom and dad. I think they did the very, very best they could. Uh, but uh, I got into a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble, uh, because my mom and dad didn't really, you know, they didn't really watch over me in one sense. They, they, they didn't want to really know what was going on. And, and um, I needed a, a shorter leash, I really did. Uh, and I got into a lot of things that I wish I hadn't. And so uh, I, I would, I, now at this point in my life, now that Jesus is in my, I would have been much obliged to have more discipline in my life. At the time, it seemed uh, you know, crazy, but uh, it's a good thing. And so that's what they're talking about. Verse 30, we would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. The reason for this was religious. It wasn't racial. Foreign spouses would result in the Israelites worshiping foreign deities. Always happened, and so don't marry uh, a foreigner is what they told them. Now, there are no such barriers in the church insofar as marriage goes, but there is still what we might call loosely a religious restriction. The Apostle Paul indicates a believer in Christ should not wed a non-believer. Don't even date a non-believer. Your first question ought to be, What's your relationship to Jesus Christ? And they ought to be able to give a cogent answer that doesn't sound like they're hem-hawing around or that they don't have any idea what you're talking about. And here's what actually happens. People fall in love with somebody. You don't realize that you can fall in love with just about anybody if you, uh, you know, let yourself. And they fall in love, and then all of a sudden somebody says, is he a Christian? 
Whoa, I never thought to ask. Uh, I'll ask, are you a Christian? Yes. All right, praise the Lord, we're done with that. Well, I don't mean to be weird, but what kind of a Christian are you? Are you a Christian that actually believes in Jesus Christ? Do you go to church? Where do you go to church? Do you have a spiritual resume? Can I call your pastor? Here's a form I'd like you to sign here giving me... Hey, we do background checks for less, don't we? Right? You get your background check to get a job. This is marriage. This is decades. There's a couple here yesterday during an afternoon event that have been married 67 years. Wow. Amazing. My mom and dad were married like 78 years, I think, before my dad died, or maybe even more. I remember going down to their 75th wedding anniversary, and it's crazy. So, but, you know, it's like, you're a Christian? Yeah, let's do this thing. It's insane. And so it falls to me, because I have that first meeting with people. So tell me about your relationship with Christ. Usually I know one person because they come to the church, but the other one maybe is a stranger. So tell me about your relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, I'm a Christian. Uh, when did you get saved? I've kind of always been saved. <laughs> and then it, it goes downhill from there. And I say, hey, can I talk to so-and-so for a minute? What are you thinking? Oh, we love each other. and They're nicer than all the Christian guys that I've dated. They're all a bunch of idiots. I go, yeah, that goes without saying, but they still, <laughs> there's got to be somebody out there for you. And so don't do it. Don't just get into it. And I, I'm joking to get, I mean, it sounds funny, but I'm not joking. If they, go to, if they don't go to church, that's a red flag. If they do go to church, talk to their pastor and uh, tell them that you want some kind of a reference is this person somebody I want to marry? Yes or no? Just a yes or no question will do. Do I want to marry Jean Pensiero? No. <laughs> or yes, depending. So verse 31, if the peoples of the land brought wares of any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. Apparently, the Jews had been reasoning that buying from Gentiles on the Sabbath was not a violation of Sabbath regulations, but it was, and they knew it, and so they repented, and they also committed to start keeping the every seventh year Sabbath as prescribed in the law. Just as a rabbit trail for a minute, this was one of the reasons that they were 70 years in captivity in Babylon just a few decades earlier. They didn't keep the seventh year Sabbath. They let the land, they kept farming, and God says, you owe me 70 years that the land should have lie fallow. And so it's amazing to me how quickly we move away from obeying the Lord. And I'm not going to go into a long apologetic on why we in the church day, uh, age have never been under the obligation to observe the Sabbath. We did a lot of that in our studies in Exodus because it came up a lot. I'm going to simply point out this one thing, and it's an important thing. The Sabbath is a lot more than Saturday worship and not working from sundown Friday through sundown Saturday. You see, your people that tell you you need to keep the Sabbath, mostly all they mean is that you should go to church on Saturday and that you should do no work, but that's kind of all over the place. But the Sabbath in the Bible involved a Sabbath year every seventh year and it involved a jubilee year every seven times seven years. To my knowledge, none of the groups who insist a believer must keep the Sabbath are observing a Sabbath year or the jubilee. 
Thus, despite their claims, they are not keeping the Sabbath. If you want to keep the Sabbath, you've got to go all the way. You can't just keep part. You can't say, God, I see how important the Sabbath is. We're going to keep part of it. This seven-year thing, that will never work in our culture. I have to work. I can't quit my job and sit around for you know, uh, a whole year. I can't trust that you would provide for me. And the Jubilee year, when I give up debts, no way. I need that money coming in. But I will pretend I'm not working on Saturday and go to church. It, it's, it's a facade. It's ridiculous. None of those groups keeps the Sabbath. Also, we made ordinances for ourselves. And by the way, if they do, they don't have to. I mean, that's not the only argument. Uh, I'm just saying they don't. If they do, God bless them, but they, they don't need to because it's between God and Israel. Verse 32. Also, we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the set feasts, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. They were much obliged to give financially to the support of the temple. Now, we talk about giving when it is in the text we are reading. In the church age, we can establish from the Bible that a believer in Christ should give money regularly, joyfully, and sacrificially as you have purposed in your heart. That's what we believe about giving. People always ask, you know, what do you believe about the tithe and about this and about that? This is what we believe. You give regularly, joyfully, and sacrificially as you have purposed in your heart with the Lord. And so all you have to do is ask yourself those three things. Do I give to my church regularly? Do I give joyfully? And is my giving sacrificial as the Lord and I have purposed in my heart? Considering all that Jesus has freely given us, we ought to be much obliged to use our money to support his body on the earth and the work of the ministry. We cast lots among the priests, verse 34, the Levites and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God, according to our father's houses at the appointed times year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. Have you ever thought about how much wood they needed to stoke the fire of the temple altar to keep that thing going and do the sacrifice? A lot more than the one or two cords we used to be able to burn before big government discovered air quality. You guys still doing fireplaces? I just gave up. I couldn't keep track of when it was a burn day and my neighbors turned me in one time. But anyway, (laughs) it was an honest mistake. I probably was watering that day too, but... (laughs) I'm always stuck, you know, should I turn my neighbors in when they're watering? I thought, I'm going to be a good neighbor, and then they turn me in, and so I guess I should obey the law is the bottom line, right? I read that the Israelites had to gather wood nine times throughout the year, big expeditions to go get a bunch of wood. No one was specifically tasked to do it, so they used the biblical method of casting lots. Long, long time ago in a younger body far from mine, I would go out and cut wood with the really manly men of our fellowship. Nothing quite like the fellowship you share over chainsaws and wood splitters. <laughs> Just, man, it's like, watch this. Now, these Israelites, they had no tractors to topple the trees in an orchard, no chainsaws, no hydraulic splitters. It speaks of hard work. Are you much obliged to do what is hard or even less glorious serving in the church? You know, there are people, they kind of bring in a worldly mindset that something is maybe beneath them because of their gifts and callings. 
Of course, nothing can be lower down than Jesus stooping to wash the feet of his disciples. And so uh, it's just a reminder to all of us that we should be much obliged to do any task that the Lord puts in front of us, uh, especially those that we're not gifted to do uh, but need to be done. Verse 35, we made an ordinance to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruits of our trees year by year to the house of the Lord to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, to bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. Everything that was first belonged to God Putting God first, that's something you should be much obliged to do, but what does it mean? Well, I, uh, while I was pondering that this week, the Oswald Chambers daily devotion happened to be put God first. He discussed putting your trust in God first, putting God's will first, and putting God's son first. And then he said this, am I allowing my natural life to be slowly transformed by the indwelling life of the son of God? God's ultimate purpose is that his son might be exhibited in me. And so as far as this putting God first, some good devotional thoughts for us to think on. Verse 38, and the priest, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up a, tithe, a tenth of the tithes, rather, to the house of our God, to the store, uh, rooms of the storehouse. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain, of the new wine and the oil, to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. 10% of the 10% went to the Levites to distribute to the priests. It seems like that was their only source of income. I can't make a direct correlation to New Testament ministers and the church staff. I, I do note that the Apostle Paul thought it important to pay ministers while he himself worked to support his ministry. Uh, and so, uh, Paul, interesting character. What I do see in this is that the priests must have had very little often. When the people backslid, they withheld their tithe, and the priests would feel it because that was where his income was derived. But those guys continued trusting God, much obliged for the privilege of serving him in their calling. A lot of my friends that are in the ministry, I could tell you a crazy story. They do stuff that you would never think of doing from a financial point of view or from a physical point of view. Uh, one friend of mine for, I don't know how many years, drove uh, every Sunday, every Saturday from uh, the high desert up to Bakersfield to help a, a church that was going there. And then they'd stay Saturday night, be there all day Sunday, and then drive back. Uh, and you say, well, that's not too big of a deal. I think I told you a story a few weeks ago about how I forfeited $10,000 that the Lord had loaned me uh, that I thought was mine, uh, but uh, that didn't work out. And just, you know, a lot of stories. Uh, there was a kind of a negative story. We had a couple at the church here years ago. They were uh, husband and wife Navy doctors, and they were getting out of the Navy to go into the mission field as, as doctors. And one of the guys in the church went up to them and said, hey, you need to forget about that. Go open a private practice, make a ton of money, and you can do mission work at the end of that after you retire. And they said, are you crazy or what? You know? and so, and, but you know, there's nothing wrong with that. 
There's nothing wrong with retiring and becoming a doctor or becoming whatever, but it has to do with calling. And so these guys, these priests, uh, for all their failings, uh, hey, they depended on you know, the, the tithe of the tithe, but when it didn't come in, they didn't quit. Uh, they thought it was a, a great obligation to be in the service of the Lord. Their promise, we will not neglect the house of our God, would be kept by their doing these and other type of things. Rededication. It's a good thing. Fire was destructive for Notre Dame. It was formative for the church, told to wait for the promise of the Father on the day of Pentecost after Jesus ascended to heaven. The disciples experienced the coming of the Holy Spirit. He's visualized there as a wind-whipped fire in the second chapter of Acts. It spread over those gathered and from them throughout the church age right up until today. 3,000 listeners were saved on the birthday of the church as Peter preached Jesus. The sound of the wind and the appearance of the flames were a one-time, not-to-be-repeated event, but the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower our service, that's ongoing as the church proclaims the living Christ. It's why sometimes we describe believers as being on fire. It, It reaches all the way back to that event on the day of Pentecost when God put that fire over believers and they... Uh, went forward with the gospel. But actually, what's funny again, not to take anything away from the first disciples or the first church, uh, they, they really didn't know what to do. God did it to them. And then people asked them, what's going on? You guys drunk or what? And Peter said, well, maybe I should explain this. And then God gave him a masterful sermon that he was probably thinking, wow, Lord, where did that come from? This day of Joel stuff is really good. And all, and so, uh, and that's continued from that day through today. We are, we are the first century church. It's just the 21st century. We have the same problems that church had. We don't always have the same power that church had. I will admit that, and that's what we need to. If you want to get back to something, get back to the simplicity of completely trusting Jesus to lead and to guide. Uh, and, and that uh, is what we really need to do. And so not neglecting leads to being on fire. Let's not neglect the church, the house of the risen son. Let's pray.